Last week when we were in John chapter 3, one of the things I tried to avoid was stealing any of the thunder from this morning's passage. It is John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. Perhaps, no, not perhaps, it is the most well-recognized, I use those words carefully, verse in the entirety of Scripture And while that has its strengths, and that has certainly my celebration for it, there are certain downsides that come with that through familiarity. We do not listen to the words. We just hear them and gloss over them. But there's a reason why a verse like John 3.16 holds the centrality of the focus, even for our culture, people who do not darken the doors of a church on any regularity perhaps could quote John 3.16. And if there were any verse in all of Scripture that I would wish that people know, it would be hard to come up with one that is better suited than John 3.16. But with that, it does not occur in a vacuum. I hope you can appreciate the chapters that have come before it and certainly the chapters that are coming after it um, and to pay attention to its context because everything that we have been working through to understand from Jesus' perspective what he is here to accomplish and do comes to the fore here as he explains his own words. It is quite something to behold the words of Jesus to talk about the nature of his own ministry. We don't get much of that, if you don't realize it. Most of the time we get the stories or the teachings or the narratives of Jesus, but you do not get his commentary on his own ministry that often. And John 3.16 is the start of a paragraph where Jesus is talking about his own ministry. Usually you'll get someone like the gospel writer Luke or Mark discussing or commentating on what Jesus is doing. Very rarely will you get Jesus doing that about his own ministry. And it's one of the things that makes this one stand out. It also makes it perhaps one of the hardest things to preach on. Uh, so I hope, you can, uh, I hope you can appreciate that. Let's stand in honor of God and his word. I don't want to mince any words before we get into this passage. And since it is a single literary unit we are going to back up two verses just to remind you of where we were last week. Our Lord says in his ministry, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our Father, we are grateful for this magnificent passage. Its truths are deep and they are broad. And we seek to understand them, if, if only in part, to understand them. 
Father, we seek a greater miracle, and that is that we would love your revelation and the things that you say. We know that our natural hearts turn away and darken instead of enlighten upon seeing your revelation. Father, we pray that you soften our hearts, make us to love those things that you love. Father, that you would soften our hearts towards one another, that we would seek that each other would love these things from you. Uh, that the fellowship of your Holy Spirit would live out in our lives and in our hearts, in our minds and in our words. We pray, Father, for these things. We pray that you give us the grace that is acceptable of Christian witness. And Father, may we not wrestle against such things. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. A passage like this warrants careful work. Anytime you are studying the scriptures and you come to something that's familiar, you need to put up your awareness eyes and pay attention much more so. There is a temptation always to gloss over familiar things. Uh, But unfortunately, what usually happens is the most familiar aspects of scripture are those places where we need to spend the most attention They've been made familiar to us by the faithfulness of others that have come before us, and so we should sit up and take notice. That when we see something that is, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes should have everlasting life. When we hear those words, we tend to hear them in the ways that we're familiar with them, with all the baggage that comes with that. And so it really behooves us to stop for just a moment and to consider maybe we haven't heard that correctly the entire time. Maybe we haven't heard it with the right emphasis. Because the reality is that verse, if you notice, unless your Bible is laid out in a bizarre way, it wasn't just the Gospel of John and then it stops and then a bunch of white space and then John 3.16 and then a bunch of white space and then the Gospel of John continues on. No, it, it occurs in the center of a thought. It occurs in the middle of a narrative where Jesus has been speaking to Nicodemus about the significance of the kingdom of heaven, about what is required to even see it, let alone enter it. And that unless somebody is born of water and the spirit, they cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven and how confusingly frustrating that is for so many people. Nicodemus being the first one flabbergasted at such a thing. The tragedy of Nicodemus gives way to the grace of the gospel wherein Christ expresses the very reason he is in the world. And so when we hear these familiar words, for God so loved the world, we tend to hear it in the way that English tends to use it, which is God just so loved the world. Yet that's not what it's saying. It's saying God in this manner loved the world. It's a statement of, not of degree of love. It is a statement of the way in which God loves the world. And that will change everything in how you approach this verse and this entire passage. To understand that this is not a description of God just trying to love the world the best that he can, but instead it is saying, you want to know what the love of God looks like. Look at Christ. Look not only at what he has done, look at who he is. 
The only Son of God has come into this world as the light itself, as the life of men, and yet we did not want him. We instead chose to reserve ourselves to the dark. Why? Because there's safety in the dark, isn't there? Darkness hides actions. That's why some of the worst offenses are happened in secret or happened in the dark or happened at night. It's because it can hide our sin. It can hide our evil. And in fact, the entire context of John 3.16 is not primarily about the love of God for this world. It is primarily about the salvation of people from darkness to light. In fact, that's what so much of the Gospel of John is about that it is introduced when we see Jesus before even the incarnation is discussed. The word of God who was and is God, who through him all things were created and made and nothing was made without him, in him was light. And that light was the life of men. That light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It has not overpowered it. It has not understood it. That light is everything of the gospel. So much so that even when we talk about the gospel, we say the light of the gospel into a dying world. The light of life. The light of God. In fact, Jesus describes himself in these terms and then introduces this very concept. And so if we want to understand not necessarily the degree with which God loved the world, because that is an incomprehensible attribute, but the manner in which God loved this world is that he gave his only son. That anyone, and this is the most surprising aspect of the whole thing, that anyone who believes in him should not perish, but have Let's just go shorthand for a second. Life. Rather than perishing, life. Rather than death, light. Rather than darkness, light. All of these juxtapositions are being brought to the fore to express to us this reality. God did not just love the world in a manner in which he gave his son. He did it with purpose. Purpose. It was a means to the end. And Jesus here is talking about his own ministry. Why am I standing in front of you? Why am I in this world? Why Jesus in the first century is in this world? It is because this is the manner in which God has loved them. That he sent his only son and that you were to believe in him. Now, pull yourselves out of John 3.16 for a second and remember the Gospel of John. What is it written for? It is written that you, reader, may know Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, and that by believing on him, you may have life in his name. With that in mind, this is calling out to the very readers of this text who are introducing themselves to this text and learning from Nicodemus, hey, I might actually share some qualities with Nicodemus, some skepticism, some frustrations with the fact that all of this compendium of, of, of scriptural history is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. 
That is a very hard thing to conceptualize. Even today, Jewish people who come to salvation in Christ have to cross an enormous boundary to realize that everything that their, that their history, their culture, their religion has focused on is not something yet to be done, but something that has already occurred. That is a very difficult thing. And yet, when the veil is removed and Christ is seen as all in all, well, do they not have a much better perspective on these things even than a Gentile such as I? How hard must it have been for Nicodemus to see this and for Jesus to talk about these things in his presence? To say to Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel and you haven't even gotten the most basic reality of this and you are depending on your perspective more than mine and yet I came from heaven and you don't even believe me about the wind. You don't even believe me about natural things. How will you believe if I tell you about spiritual things? But it doesn't stop him. Jesus continues to tell him about spiritual things and says the reality is, unless you believe on the one that God has sent, your destination is death. That goes for Nicodemus. That goes for all the disciples there that day. That goes for everyone in all of the world. God has not provided another mode of salvation for any other living person ever in history. And so for Jesus to say this about himself is to say not so much about the way in which God loved the world, though he is saying this, he's saying the reality is, and the effect of this is, it is unifying to all the humanity of the world. It doesn't matter if you're born in India. It doesn't matter if you are born in Parthia or Mede or if you're Persian in ancestry or if you're Jewish. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to not perish. And it's not just to avoid perishing. It is not, as so many have assumed, just a way to avoid hell. It is a way to inherit life. And in fact, as the Gospel of John will come further into our minds, it is not just a way to inherit life, it is the only way to inherit life. And this exclusionary language focused on the person of Jesus of Nazareth is why they were trying to kill him. Over and over they sought his life. Why? Because he was claiming not only to be the son of God, makes himself equal with God, as we'll find in chapter 5, but he is also claiming that if you do not consume my flesh and drink my blood, you will die. Chapter 6. You say, but it's such a hopeful passage. It is but it comes with a very stark reality statement. And it comes out in the very next verse, verse 17. See this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? 
Sounds all positive. We should stop quoting it right there. And every, everyone will be happy and everything's fine. Jesus just came to show us the love of God and to not condemn the world. Everything's great. That's where the gospel message ends, right? No. It's a description of the roles of which Christ's ministry was here to do. What does he say? He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the purpose of Jesus' ministry. And for anyone who's coming and reading the Gospels for the first time, realize that that's primarily what the Gospel of John's written for. If they're familiar with the Old Testament, they might come to the conclusion, maybe we're talking about God changing his mind about judgment and all that mean stuff all of a sudden. Doesn't it seem to you at times that the Old Testament has much more harsh language for us than the Gospels or even the words of Christ? I would argue it has much more to do with, one, our lack of familiarity with the Old Testament, because there's an enormous amount of positivity in the Old Testament. But two, it also has to do with our lack of familiarity with which Christ spoke. He spoke far more about hell than he spoke about heaven. Far more. Far more about warning people of the end goal of their current path. And while Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, the reality is the world was already condemned. And most of us do not have a view of humanity that says without Christ, every man, woman, and child is already condemned. And that is why when we come to a passage like this, we think it is just positive and we kind of ignore the rest of this. Let me warn us about this. This will make us have a gospel that is impotent. A gospel that just comes in and says, while your life may be working out well, here's a way to make it better, just follow Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel comes to a world that's already dying, already condemned, already under the wrath of God, and says, here is the way of life. His name is Jesus. Walk in him. Trust in him. You have no hope outside of him. And for those of us who are ministers to the gospel, which is every single Christian in this room, you are ministers of a new covenant, of the gospel that's given to us. We do not come to other people and say, is your life not working out right? Here's an alternate way to live. Here's some rules. Here's the Bible. It'll tell you what to do and not do. No. You and I come to somebody who is dying and say, I was dying too. No hope had I. But no matter what I pursued in this life, it would be ripped away from me at the grave. No purpose, no life that was anything past the grave. And under the wrath of God, the book of Ephesians reminds Christians that before salvation, we were children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. It shreds our pride. And it causes us never to preach the gospel with us in mind or even our churches. It tells us instead to put Christ high on display and to say he is the only way to life. I don't even care 
if upon salvation, the life of Christ manifests itself differently in a person other than me, and that they look and carry on in life completely other than I would. I only care that they have the life of Christ. I only care that they see Christ and Him crucified. Because the disagreements among Christians pale in comparison to the threat of condemnation on every man, woman, and child in this world and of those generations yet to be born, of which you and I are caretakers of this gospel to hand it down to them. It has been often stated, and with good reason, that the church is always one generation away from losing the gospel. And unless we preach it faithfully to each other, we too will lose it, as has happened in many generations of the church. It is why we come to the scriptures over and over again, because they realign us. They take us back to the source of Christ himself and to say, why is it he has come into the world? It is not because the world was doing okay without him. It is because the world was shrouded in darkness without him. It is because people were perishing without him. It is because we stand condemned without him. Notice, as he says to the ruler of the people of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the Pharisees himself, saying there, Nicodemus, saying, I am not here for the people of Israel. I am here for the world. If there was a paradigm-breaking moment in this conversation, it was that moment. When Jesus declares that the reason why the Father sent him into this world is so that he might save the world, that right there would be the most offensive, the most personal sliding message that Nicodemus received that entire evening. Even more than to say, the birth that you need to even see the kingdom of heaven is more significant than your mother. It's more significant than anything else that's ever occurred, more significant than the commands of Scripture. This is God himself. And while God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the first place I smile. to realize that the world sits in the condemnation of the law of God, and then to realize that I, who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, do no longer stand condemned, is an unbelievable statement. The change that happens at the moment of trusting in Christ is so overwhelming, we cannot even quantify it. And I do not mean just the mere changes of lifestyle habits. These things are side effects. The reality of bringing light into a dark corner of a recessed, condemned heart 
and God raising this person to life and them waking up to find out that they trust in Christ more than in anyone else or in anything else is a transmission of reality that cannot be quantified. I remember the moment it happened. Not because everything in my life got better. Not because all my habits went away or all my sins went away. Still waiting for that one. Not because I had a feeling of warmth in the center of my being. No. But because for the first time in my life, I loved Christ more than myself for just a flash of a moment. And I have spent my whole life trying to relive that moment by moment. Because right at the height of one of the grandest promises in Scripture, whoever believes in him is not condemned, is one of the worst. Whoever does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the singular Son of God. Why was Christ sent into the world to save the world? Because that was the expression of God's love for this world. Why wasn't he sent to condemn the world? Because the world was already dead. And because we live in a society that thinks mankind has far more to offer to God than he actually does, we don't usually approach it with that appreciation. We don't usually approach it with the appreciation of the reality that without Christ, we are dead. We tend to think that humanity has at least a good shot of doing good works. We usually think that man has a good shot at impressing God with our fealty outside of Christ. Maybe if he just gives us some rules to follow. Maybe if he just gives us some do's and don'ts and we just really get down to it and put our nose to the grindstone and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or hold each other accountable, we can accomplish these things. I'll give away the ending. No, you won't. And no, I won't. And nor will anyone else ever in history ever accomplish anything that brings them out of the state of condemnation. Not one person has ever done this. And in fact, the epistle to the Galatians warns us, if there were such a person, then all of us are on the hook for all of the law. But in the midst of our condemnation, in the midst of our cowering in the dark, light shined into this world. And for those who remained in the dark, they hide from the light because Christ has a way of pointing out our faults and our sins and our other loves. He has a way of shining light into places that we don't let other people see. You know where of which I speak. Those sins that we would rather nobody else know about. 
those things that we have done, those things that we have left undone, are no surprise to Christ. And here's the reality. He remembers we are but dust. And he loves us in this manner as to give his only son that we may be brought up from the dust, formed into living beings, and possess the breath of life. Our God, when I say that for God so loved the world is not an expression of saying it's just so, so much. I do not mean to insist that God does not love us so much. I only mean to say that this is a description of how he's talking about it. So let me talk about the love of God for just a moment. I believe one of the reasons why the scriptures do not try to quantify the love of God for his people is that there are not words sufficient. There are not words sufficient to describe the love of God for his people. I don't know if our imaginations can conceive of it. Hymn writers have attempted, one of my favorite hymns of all time, uses the words that says, O love of God, so rich and pure, so measureless and strong. Were the whole sky of parchment made, and every stalk on earth a quill, and the ocean filled with ink, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. And the scroll could not contain the whole, though written from sky to sky. O love of God. Immeasurable, vast, and beyond. to send us light into this world, to come and be born as one of us, to dwell with his sinful people still in the person of the Holy Spirit, to bear with us when we cannot bear with ourselves, to be faithful when we are faithless, to carry on the fellowship of fallen humanity as they seek to in one voice worship him as the only true God. The testament to God's love is sitting all around us in the faces of one another. Don't miss it. Verse 19. This is the judgment the judgment of what? Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Darkness has a way of hiding, just like any secret. Darkness has a way of cloaking sins, of hiding away things that we would rather love and enjoy rather than God. 
Now I say this on the ultimate stage, because here he is not talking about sins in the life of believers. There's plenty of epistles for that. Here, Christ is talking about the devotion that a fallen person has under the condemnation of God to their sins and their wayward lusts more than a love of Christ and to choose it every time. Even though at a moment they may say, I would wish to follow Christ because I see the ramifications of that in some people's lives or, or there's an excitement about it or there's something fascinating about it or I've seen what it's done in somebody else's life so maybe I will follow Christ. But when a time of testing or when the desires of this life show up, they fall away and it frustrates us. This is a lot of negative language to come after John 3.16. Why wouldn't anyone want to come to the light? Why wouldn't they want to come? Haven't we made the gospel offer easy enough that anybody on the face of earth would want it? Some I've seen try to make the gospel presentation so appealing to people that it's akin to walking up with them, to them with a gold bar and saying, here, it's free. Just take it. Don't ask any questions. And they're right to look at us with some level of skepticism because that's not how it works. Anything of value is worth everything. Anything of value that would be measured on that kind of a scale would be worth not just handing around to any random person. And yet the reality of what Christ is expressing here is saying God has shown his love in such a way that he has sent me into this world. Not to condemn it, because it already sits there, but to save people. We must not hold back the expressions of the gospel of the necessity for salvation, lest you die. When we share the gospel with people that have not bowed the knee to Christ, we must not make it about them or about us or about our pride or about saving more souls, as if that was up to you. It must be focused on Christ. He will either save you, or you'll remain condemned by him. There is only one way of life. There is only one name under heaven to be saved by. This is not a matter of submit to him before you die or he'll kill you forever. That's not the whole compendium of the gospel. No, you want to hear it like the apostles put it. Let's hear it how Paul put it to Gentiles on Mars Hill. The days of wickedness God has overlooked. And he has commanded that all men everywhere repent and turn to him. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ would be the shorthand. 
Why? Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by that one man, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. We must preach the gospel with the threat of death. It cannot be preached as a way to make your life a little bit better. If the gospel comes in just to make your life a little bit better, I promise you that will only last a season. Because the perspective of Scripture is never to come down and say, your life is okay, you just need a little bit of Jesus sprinkled all over it. That's not it. It is discussed so significantly as to say, what you were before Christ is dead. What you are now is life. What you once were was darkness. What you are now is light. What you once were is condemned. Now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Sinner, saint. Condemned, saved. Do you see the difference? It is such a stark contrast. You cannot blur those lines. And as Christ is describing this to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus' entire world is crumbling in his mind, Jesus says, I'm not here to save just the people of Israel. I'm here for the whole world. This salvation will no longer be sectioned only to Jerusalem and the physical temple. This will go out everywhere. Because why? As far as the curse is found... One of the great Christmas hymns has put it, far as the curse is found. And that curse has gone not just to the boundaries of Israel, they have gone to the uttermost parts of the world. And so the salvation and the love of God will pursue it all the days of this world's existence until that last person that will come to Christ comes to Christ. Nicodemus' mind is rightly wrestling with all of this because he's starting to realize not only does he stand at the crux of all of history, but he is talking to the crux of all of history. Everything is going to fulcrum on Christ. Everything will. No matter if you have Abraham as your father or Esau, it is irrelevant in the gospel. Christ is has God as his father. And for the church, he is our head. And why is this so significant? Verse 19, because this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Otherwise, his works would be exposed. It would show us who we truly are. And here, at the core of it, in sharing the gospel, not only do we have to be honest about what the gospel is, we have to be honest about who we are. How many of us have the gall to imagine that our actions and our habits match our position in Christ? Perfect and righteous. What inheritance we have in Christ is absolute holiness, eternal. But our works aren't there yet, are they? How many of us still have unholiness in our lives? Just me? All right. You're all stuck here for another couple hours. I got a few passages to share with you. How many of us still have unholiness in our lives? 
how is it then you can claim a verse like Romans 8.1 that says there is no condemnation to you? Because we are in Christ. That is the honesty of the Christian. Not to go up to somebody and say, hey, your life is bad because it's not as good as mine. I found Jesus and my life is better. You should be like me. Somebody who is preaching this, one, either does not understand the gospel or is not a Christian. And I mean that in the harshest terms. I actually mean it much more harsh than that, but I'm being nice. That is a false gospel. The gospel says, hey, you're doing exactly what I do and what I have done a thousand times. That path leads to death. I know it very well. Let me tell you about the one who takes people on the road to death and sticks them on the road to life. Let me tell you about the one who I turn back to over and over and over and over again because of my failures and my pride and my weaknesses and my sins that easily entangle me. What hope have I outside of Christ? None. Not for a moment. But you can also know the hope of Christ. Repent and believe on him. I promise you, life is worth giving up death. Do not pursue a path that leads to death. You will surely reach your destination. Do not hide from the light of Christ. He will shine a bright light into every corner of your life and it will expose things that will embarrass you. Good. Sunlight is a wonderful disinfectant. Bringing things out of the alleyways into the main street. Bringing things out of the corners into the middle. I wish I wish that all the dark corners of my own heart had so much light. And I wish that for you too. I wish that for all of us. That Christ would shine into our lights in a new way than we've experienced even today. And that only comes through his word. It only comes through his promises. And it only comes through the fellowship of the Spirit of God. Look at the humility's outcome in verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Even as Christians, my friends, do not take credit for good works. If you're like me, you know your contribution to salvation. Sin. That's it. And if you're like me, you also know your contribution to sanctification. 
sin to keep you humble and to remind you what God already knows is that you are dust. We have a calling that way outpaces our ability. We are called to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many of us can actually raise our hands and say, yes, I have done that even this week? No, you haven't. Not on the whole, not on the standard of holiness. And that is what Jesus is doing to Nicodemus. He is shredding this guy's concept of his own self-worth. Not so that he would be depressed, but that he would seek a significant healing salve to recognize that his soul is already crushed. I want to say with the apostles the same thing. But for the grace of God, there go I. You see something in my life that is not Christ-like. I can promise you I've seen it before and I have confessed it and repented of it a thousand times. And it is frustrating to me too. And I see the same thing in your lives too. And you see it in each other's. The frustration of fellowship requires that the Holy Spirit live in our midst because we will not get along naturally. We don't have, thankfully, just natural things to do here. We have supernatural ones. And it is God who enables these things. And what does he say here? What does Christ say right at the compendium of this? He says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. Why? What's his goal? What's his perspective? It's to bring glory to God. That whatever good in my life has happened in following Christ is not owed to me. It is owed to God. And we can say the same thing as we said when we came to Christ for salvation. There is nothing in my hands that I bring. Only to the cross we cling. Naked we come to him for dress. Helpless we cry out for grace. There is nothing in our hands that we bring. And my friends, if you have been Christians for 30, 40, 50, 150 years... The story is still the same. Now we love the light of Christ, not just because it shows us the sin that easily besets us. No, we love the light of Christ because it shows the works that God has carried out in our lives, things that we love now that we never loved before. To see the kindness of Christians carrying on one another in prayer and in concern. Things that we did not love before, we love now. The gentleness of Christ when we would rather him be harsh. The grace of God when we would rather him be judgmental. The patience of God when we want him to act. We start loving the things that he loves. And now we seek to love the light of Christ come into this world. Not only because it points out our sins that we may joyfully repent and confess of, but because it also points out to us what God is doing in our lives. And I promise you, it's not just the works in the places where you think you're successful. God spends his time working in the normal things of life. God spends his time slowly forming you 
after the image of Christ over the course of years. I have been surprised in my 28 years as a Christian what things I expected would grow my my love of Christ and what things actually did grow my love of Christ. I expected that my love of Christ would grow if I went to this camp or this conference or or read this new book that was released or or carried on this or led someone to Christ or something like this. No. I've experienced all of those things. I can't think of a one of them that led me to love Christ more. It's just the boring normalness of being in his word and with his people that has actually caused me to love Christ more and more as the years go on. Something I never expected. Something I never expected. I want us all to expect that now. I want us to give God glory for what he is doing in our lives. And not just because we're on the cusp of something here or there. No, I will say this today and next year and the next year and every year afterwards. May God be glorified in our presence and as he carries out his will in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world to save us from this condemnation. We thank you that you did not just send him, except only in the beginning, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but that you sent him to the world. And that by extension, he sent his disciples into the world as well. We thank you, Father, here at the ends of the earth, that you have seen fit to pull us from the fire, to set our feet not on sandy soil that gives way the moment trials come, but to set our feet on the rock, an anchor for the soul and a mainstay of our lives. May Christ be exalted in our relationships and in our sharing of his gospel. May you be praised. May you find us faithful due to the works that you are working in our lives despite our worst efforts. We thank you, Father, for your promises that will always win out. We thank you, Father, for this day. In your Son's name, amen.